And we're going to be looking not just at a couple of verses there, but at several verses in the entire book of Acts. But I promise you we're not looking at in the entire book, but uh, we're looking at a couple of verses uh, throughout the book of Acts. This is what I think is one of the most exciting books in all of God's Word. If you remember last week, if you were here, we started a new emphasis, a re-emphasis, if you will, on discipleship. If you ask me, discipleship is what a lot of churches across not just our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, but a lot of churches in general that make up the fabric of our land, I think we've kind of dropped it. We've dropped the ball in terms of making disciples. So when COVID hit, it was an opportunity for churches like ours to kind of reevaluate, you know, how we do church, what do we do that works, what do we do that's just a lot of fluff, and the fluff might be fun, but, you know, really what are we doing when it comes to making disciples? And when I think of discipleship, That is something that every church that wants to be a church that makes the Lord Jesus Christ glorified, we ought to make sure we do discipleship to the best of our ability. So so we've started this new emphasis that we call the growth track, and we've got a couple of sermons that we're going to be bringing to you today in the next two weeks, and Pastor Robert and Trey will be sharing that with us. So um, this is the last time you'll hear from me. Lord willing, at least for maybe a couple of weeks. And I'm I'm glad you didn't say amen to that. Don't say amen. That would really mess me up, all right? But um, we're going to be sharing the pulpit, and they'll be sharing about these particular subjects, give to the work of Christ and go with the message of Christ. But today, we're going to be talking about growing into the image of Christ. If you haven't figured it out by now, bless my heart, I like college football, and I like football in general, but really, college football, and um, you feel my pain, don't you? Because already, you know who I like and stuff like that, and our mantra has been wait till next year. I shared an illustration uh, last Sunday that I kind of want to share with you again. Uh, one of the most legendary coaches in all of sports when it comes to football is Vince Lombardi. And uh, I used to have a, a quotation from him. In fact, his, one of his speeches that he gave to his Green Bay Packers at halftime, I've got one of his speeches framed, and it's in my garage right now. I used to have it in an office, and it was entitled, What Does It Take to Be Number One? Can y'all tell I'm competitive? And I, and I like that, that particular saying, that speech that Vince Lombardi gave. But he also did this to his team, and I shared it with you last week. Not only did he do it once, but he did it several times. He would bring his team in, veterans and seasoned athletes alike, and he would remind them, gentlemen, this is a what? A football. He would have that football on him. He's like, this is a football. Now, you can't get any more basic than that. And there again, he shared that not only with veterans, but with rookies, seasoned athletes that have been playing the game for years, and then with rookies right out of the college ranks, he would remind them this is the football. He knew the importance of going back to the basics. And when it comes to our church, I want us to go back to the basics of making disciples. I shared with you last week this particular saying. It's really, really true and accurate. Healthy churches make disciples. You know you're a healthy church. Not only are are you seeing the baptismal water stirred and people joining the church, but you really know you're a healthy church if God is using you and your congregation to make disciples that make an impact and make a difference in our world. And we believe it's best accomplished together. When we as a church body gather and grow and give and go, we believe all of that together really helps us lay a foundational groundwork for making disciples. One of the defining characteristics, we talked about this last week, is that for 2,000 years, the Church of Jesus Christ, believers in Jesus have, what have they done? Well, they've gathered, and they've gathered on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, and they've gathered on the Lord's Day, and we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, not just at Easter, but every single Sunday, every single day, right? All right, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
So, um, so we get to celebrate that as we gather together as the body of Christ each and every week. Living things grow. Living organisms grow. And God expects for his church to grow by making disciples. You know, um, the upstate's a beautiful part of our, of, our, of our state. And I love being able to be on 85 and seeing the mountains. I love being on 26 and you just get right, right above Spartanburg and then you see all those mountains. But if you were on I-85 traveling from Greenville to Spartanburg at certain times of the day, you really need to be praying when you're on I-85 traveling from Greenville to Spartanburg. But if you're on I-85 traveling from Greenville to Spartanburg, you see something amazing. You see this massive manufacturing complex. And before I went to seminary, I was in manufacturing, and the manufacturing process is kind of exciting and intriguing to me, how you can take a product from the opening like cotton and you make it into a piece of fabric like what we're wearing today. So you know by me saying that, that I was in textiles before seminary. But what's so amazing about this particular manufacturing plant off of I-85 is its sheer size. Listen to this, 1,150-acre campus, 7 million square feet. I mean, that is just a huge footprint there on, off of I-85. This manufacturing plant generates its own power. They have their own firefighting personnel. They've got their own 24-hour uh, security personnel. They even got their own on-site health facility. I mean, it's just a massive, massive undertaking. They employ about 11,000 people, and, and this is an interesting fact. It is the fastest factory startup of an automotive plant in history. From the time that they, they shoveled the dirt to the time the first cars rolled off the line, 23 months. I mean, that's just amazing to think about. And since then, 4 million cars have rolled off that assembly line, and on any given day, 1,400. 1,400 brand-new vehicles leave their plant, and they're shipped to dealerships all over the country. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm not talking about Chevrolet or Ford, although I'm a Ford guy. I mean, I really am. But I'm talking about BMW. And, and I have had an argument for years. I've told Tina more than once. I said, you know what? We need to do the, what we can to be the, a blessing to the economy of South Carolina and buy a BMW. That's an argument that hasn't taken. But I really think I look good in one. But anyway, I'm a car guy, and I just like those particular cars. Now listen to this. I say all that to say this, and I know I need to slow down because I'm really excited this morning. I've just been running, running, running around this morning. The purpose of that massive plant, that massive BMW plant, is to produce what? Cars, right? You're an above-average congregation, Trey. They got it right. It's to produce cars. Listen to this. The purpose of God's church is to make disciples. The purpose of his church is to produce disciples. David Platt, who once wrote the book, or he did write the book, Radical, and who was once uh, president, leader of our International Mission Board, which is part of the Southern Baptist Convention, Lighting Moon Christmas Offering. Uh, David Platt once made a statement that went like this. Christ followers are to bring glory to God by making disciples of all nations. Christ followers are to bring glory to God by making disciples of all nations. Now, that, if those words kind of sound familiar to you, they should. Because Jesus said them first. And after his resurrection and before Jesus went back into heaven, he gave these words to his disciples, to his followers, to the Christians there that were watching him ascend back to heaven. He said these words. Matthew records it for us over in Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority, not some, not a little bit, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all things. And lo, I'm with you always, to the very end of the age. So Jesus makes it pretty clear, doesn't he? He expects, he intends, he commands us 
to make disciples. Now, I know how we are as Americans. We like to look at it for, you know, well, this is a gray area here, gray area here. You know, how are we supposed to respond to this? And, and us Baptists are really good about it. You know, us in the organized church, we're like, well, let's form a committee and let's decide what it means to make disciples. Now, it's pretty point and dry. I mean, it's here in black and white. Jesus doesn't suggest he commands us to make disciples. So in the same way BMW plants make BMWs, the church of Jesus Christ is to make disciples. Greg Ogden, in his book, Discipleship Essentials, made this comment. He said, disciples cannot be mass-produced. They're not like cars. They, they just can't be mass-produced on an assembly line, but they are the product of intimate and personal investment. So if we want to be a church that God wants us to be, we need to be in the business of making disciples. Now, you might find this interesting. The word discipleship doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture. I know, hold on to your seat. That's right, but the word discipleship doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture. But the concept of discipleship does. In fact, the root word for discipleship is the word disciple. And let me just tell you what a disciple means. A disciple basically means that you're a learner. And everybody in here today, regardless of your age, has sometimes sat under the authority of a teacher, be it in school or in the workplace, but, but you know what it means to be a learner. You sit under the the leadership of a teacher that's, that's whose sole job is to instruct you on a particular subject, and the, <laughs> you gauge how whether you pass that class if you give back to the teacher what he or she has given to you. I remember taking a class in uh, my very first class at, uh, in college, and, and I'll just be up front with you. I didn't make good on my very first grade in college. It was very demoralizing because I really thought I studied. I found out I didn't know how to study. And, I met, and it was a history test, all essay. And I remember meeting with Dr. Loomis, and I'm saying, Dr. Loomis, I, I, I don't understand. How did I make such a bad grade on this test? My very first grade, great time of day. It was terrible. It looked like a little flag, you know, on my test paper there. <laughs> and, and he sat down with me one-on-one, -on -one and he said, well, this is what you didn't give me. And I found out he wanted me to give him back everything that I had written down. That's why my handwriting is so atrocious because I took a lot of classes under Dr. Lumens, and I loved Dr. Lumens there at USC Aiken. It was just a wonderful, I took just about every history class I could under him. Because I learned, I learned him, but I learned to love history even more than I do. And I had to give him back everything that he had given to us in his lectures. That's not a disciple. A disciple um, is so, somewhat different than a student. A student might want to emulate their teacher for a season. I can guarantee you there's been some teachers in my life I did not want to emulate. Uh, in fact, my geometry teacher in high school, she was a great person, but geometry is not for me. If it was history, that would have been for me. But geometry, I gave her back what little I could just so I could pass the class. It just didn't g-haul with me. Y'all use that word, g-haul? I kind of used that word, g-haul. So I was really glad that class was over, and I didn't want to emulate anything else about her. Not anything I wanted to emulate about that class, but a disciple wants to sit under somebody for life. And a disciple really wants to say, what, whatever it is about you, I want that that's in your life to be in my life. Several years ago, God put in my life a guy by the name of Denley. And Denley discipled more people out of the ministry than he ever did whenever he was in the ministry, vocational ministry, as either a pastor or a director of missions. And I would travel, Kevin, I'd go about an hour just to sit at his feet. And, and it took a lot of effort for me to go there. And, and here's one thing that I wanted to emulate out of Denley's life. Man, I hope he's listening today. I, I have no idea if he ever will or if he does. But, um, but I learned this from him. And I wanted this to be said about me as I saw it in his life. 
I had never seen a person that had a more closer walk with the Lord than Denley. So I said, Denley, I, I want to come down one morning. And it really took a lot of effort because sometimes I'm not the best morning person. But I would get up at the crack of dawn. I would drive all the way to his, um, his place. And he allowed me to do something that he thought was kind of odd. Here's what it is. I said, Denley, I just want to see what your personal quiet time is like. I want to observe you. And Denley, I'll sit over here in the corner. I just want to watch like, it's, like if I was a church mouse, you know. I just want to watch what was going on and how you communicate with God in your personal quiet time. You know why that was odd? Because it's his personal quiet time. But he allowed me, David, he allowed me to actually sit under, in, under his leadership. And I just got, he invited me to sit at his table. And we didn't eat in his kitchen. He had a, a kitchen, it was almost like the old servant's quarters. He lived in very, very old. Denley would tell you, he, he lived in the wrong era. He should have lived in the 1700s. He cooked for me coffee, or he, he brewed coffee for me. Robert would like this. The coffee that he ground for me, I had never in my life seen a coffee grinder like that. I couldn't tell you how old it was, but it was older than y'all. I mean, it was just an old, old coffee grinder. I didn't know what it was, but he ground me coffee. Uh, he, he brewed me some coffee uh, that was fresh, southern pecan. It was just really good. Man, I could almost taste it right now. And then he made me some grits on a wood-burning stove. That was the coolest thing I've ever seen. Y'all remember a wood-burning stove? I left there wanted to emulate everything about him. I even wanted a wood-burning stove, but I had no idea where I was going to put it. I still want a wood-burning stove. I have no idea where I will put it. But I thought that was really, really neat. And, and he invited me to his breakfast table with fresh coffee and grits. I don't think they were hominy, but they were really good. And we sat there, and he allowed me to watch him do his personal Bible study. I was a disciple of Denley's. Now, Denley would tell you that he doesn't like saying that he's a disciple maker, but in my mind and in the minds of many, many other people, he truly was a disciple maker. And I wanted, if anything, to emulate his devotional life that he had with the Lord. Now, let me point out something obvious, going back to my opening illustration, if you will. BMW makes automobiles, but we can't. We can't <laughs> make Christians. It's not our job to save anyone. That's the job of who? The Holy Spirit. That's the job of Jesus. Only God can save people. And can I tell you something? God wants everybody saved. Uh, just to throw this out to you, John Calvin once wrote in his writings that God wishes all to be saved. Richard Baxter, who's a great Puritan man of God, who in his book, A Call to the Unconverted, I don't think that would be on Amazon's bestseller list this day and age, but he wrote a book called A Call of the Unconverted. Richard Baxter, a great Puritan man of God. I liked him so much I named a dog after him, Baxter. Baxter's no longer with us these days, but I wrote a, uh, I, I named my dog Baxter because of Richard Baxter, a preacher. Name, how about that? A preacher names a dog by a preacher's name. Anyway, Richard Baxter said this, God truly longs, he truly longs for the salvation of the law. So only God can save people. But after he saves them, this is what he does. And you really want to say, Lord, why are you doing this? Well, this is what God's plan is from the beginning, and that's to give somebody that is saved to the church so that we might disciple them. But the question is, how in the world do you do it? I mean, how do you make disciples systematically, and how do you do so consistently? There again, Greg Ogden said these words. The manner in which the Lord works is incarnational. Life, I like this, life rubs against life. We passed on Christ-likeness through intimate modeling. Now, that might sound intimidating to you. 
hey, it even sounds intimidating to me as well. But what we kind of boil down discipleship to, I think, in churches that I've always been a part of and churches you've been a part of as well, whether it's this church or other churches that you've been a part of in your journey, it seems like we've always boiled discipleship down to either a class or a lecture or, or, or some type of you know, classroom environment or program that you're setting through. And oftentimes, here's what we get. We get people that have logged thousands of hours in church, but they're no more spiritually mature than when they went through the waters of baptism. Now, let me just lighten the mood for you when I say this. Learning to follow Christ is a lot like riding a bike. Y'all go back to your childhood with me for just a moment. What's one of the coolest things you ever got at Christmas? One of the coolest things I ever got at Christmas was that. Yep, that's yours truly. I was one cool dude, wasn't I? I tell you what, I look scrawny is what I look. Man, those pajamas need to be pulled down. But I got, my, I got me a bicycle at Christmas, and I love that thing. And I, I even got a stretch Armstrong. Y'all see that? That was cool. I tell you what, the first surgery I ever did, Travis, was on stretch Armstrong. I think he survived, but I really can't remember. But I, re I remember, I love that bicycle that I got. And, 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 and I had to learn to ride it. There was no YouTube videos. There was no manual that I had to read. I put on jeans. I hope, and a shirt, because <laughs> I didn't want you know, my neighbor to see all my muscles and all that. And, and I went out there, and I, hopefully I didn't go on the asphalt, but I learned to ride it on grass. I'm glad I don't see trainer wheels on that thing. So I was really an above-average bike rider, Trey. I knew how to, even then, to, to keep the shiny side up. But, but learning to ride a bike, <laughs> it's just like learning to make a disciple. And nobody does that better than Barnabas. Can I just tell you this? Everybody needs or Barnabas. I love, if you've heard me preach any length of time, you know I love the person whose name is Barnabas. And everybody needs a Barnabas in their life. I hope you got your Bibles open to Acts chapter 4. And let me ask you to turn there if you don't. And you can use your electronic device. Just turn there with me. And there's a couple of verses that we're going to be looking at here over in Acts chapter 4. And let me just say this. Uh, just like I said last week, this is not a typical sermon that I'm used to preaching that I like to preach. Uh, this may not be a typical sermon that you're even used to. Uh, we're going through a teaching series because we're going back to the basics. We're doing some housekeeping, if you will. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 for a little bit, looking at just a couple of verses there. It's a way for us, if you will, to do some housekeeping as a church. Barnabas is a great picture of a Christ follower, of a Christian who seriously takes the mandate to make disciples. I mean, he really does take that mandate seriously that I'm going to make disciples. And we see this about him in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. I love this. First time we're introduced to him, the church is in its infancy. The church is growing. You know, little babies, what do we expect babies to do? But to grow, right? And to leave the home, praise God, right now. <laughs> yeah, we expect babies to grow, right? And the church was growing. And we come up here to verse 36. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas, son of encouragement. You know, when you look through the Gospels and how the gospel spread from Jerusalem all the way through the Mediterranean area, Barnabas is always part of the story, but he's not the main focus of the story but let me just tell you what Barnabas does and we can glean from his life what it's like to be a disciple one of the things I love about Barnabas is that Barnabas really did strive 
to help others. He wanted to bring people along. He wanted to disciple them, not just leave them from wet from being in the baptistry, but he wanted to bring them along on their journey that's called discipleship. And he doesn't dominate the story, but man, his story just is one of great impact on others. And one of the things about Barnabas is that he helped others. He helped others. What did he do? Well, one of the things we see about Barnabas, and one of the first things we see here in Scripture, is that he sold all of his possessions and he gave it to the apostles. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to sell all your possessions. All right? But that's what Barnabas did. That's what he was filled, that's what he felt led of the Lord to do. And he sold all of his possessions and he gave it, he gave everything that he sold, he gave all the proceeds from that, he gave it to the, to the disciples. Why? Because Christians like us who were in the church in Jerusalem were really being persecuted in the first Christians for being followers of Jesus. So what God laid up in Barnabas' heart was like, hey, I'm going to help others, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell everything that I've got, and, and David, I'm going to give it to the apostles there, and they're going to take all that money, and they're going to give it to the church there in Jerusalem because they're really being persecuted. We have no idea, really, how the church in Jerusalem was being persecuted. But let me just say this. Oh, to have a church, to have a denomination where we were like a Barnabas. Well, we just wanted to go all out in terms of helping others. And, and, and let me just say this when it comes to discipleship. If you really want to have a heart like Barnabas, you'll have a heart that's generous. You won't be worth a dime. I'll even, you won't even be worth a quarter. How about that? But you won't even be worth a dime if you're discipling someone and you don't have a generous heart. He really had a heart that was generous. He wanted to help others. Not, and, and here's one of the others that he brought along. This is a big wig. He brought along a guy named Paul. <laughs> you can't get any, any bigger than a person like Paul, a, a giant in our faith. Uh, if your Bibles are still open, look there with me over in Acts chapter 9 and look at a couple of verses there. And, and the verses I want you to look at is verses 26 and following. And it's really pretty to hear the sound of God's word being turned in your hands there. Acts chapter 9, look there at verse 26 and following. We read about here an encounter that Barnabas has with a guy named Paul shortly after his conversion. Verse 26 of Acts chapter 9. And when he had come to Jerusalem, we're talking about Paul here, or Saul, you know, he's, his name has changed from Saul to Paul. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Go figure, I would have been in the same boat. Because Paul was a zealot. And if anything, his MO was to persecute followers of the way, which is people like us. I mean, he really had it in for us. He even was there at the stoning and at the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. That's Saul. But then he meets Jesus and his life is radically changed. Aren't you glad about that? Jesus changes lives. Y'all believe that? Say amen if you do. I mean, he really changed his life. So, so, so here's, here's Barnabas, and he's bringing along Paul, verse 27. But Barnabas took him, and Barnabas brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So what Barnabas is doing is he went to bat for Paul here. Because those disciples were like, hey, hey wait a minute, we, we know this guy. We know this guy named Saul. He's, he is one bad dude. We're not going to trust him with a 10-foot pole. And Barnabas is saying, I've got his back. And Barnabas went to bat for a guy named Paul. Hmm. Hey, here, here's the, a, a beautiful word when it comes to disciple-making. 
one of the beautiful things about disciple making is that you get to do exactly what Barnabas did in Paul's life and that's to bring somebody along you get to just be with them and walk through the journey with them so Barnabas did that Barnabas brought Paul in but something else that he did was and it went blank I don't know why help me out there yeah thank you Barnabas built up Paul. <laughs> so as the story unfolds here, we're in Acts chapter 11. You can turn there. I may not read it, but just turn there with me your copy to God's Word to Acts chapter 11. Really interesting thing happens in Acts 11. Here in Acts 11, the Bible says that a great number of people, a great number of people begin to trust in Jesus. Tis so sweet to what, church? Trust in Jesus. Some of you are thinking, I'm about to sing, but I'm not about to sing. But tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. And in verse 22 of Acts 11, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch. There in Antioch, he becomes basically Barnabas does the pastor of the church. And he could have been famous. He could have been the next, you know, big shot pastor there, pastoring out of the church there in Antioch. But he realized something. And what Barnabas realized was that there was someone that was a little greater than he. And with all these people coming to faith in Jesus, Barnabas realized we need somebody that can really articulate the biblical truth to the mind of all these people that are being saved. Look at verse 25 of Acts chapter 11. Verse 25 of Acts chapter 11. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when they found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church, and he taught a great many people. And in Antioch, y'all see that? In Antioch, the disciples were first called what? Christians. Very first time we are called Christians was in a little place called Antioch. Barnabas never said, hey, Paul, watch what I do. Learn from me. You know, I'm in charge here. He never said that. He basically gave the reins to Paul. And what you see here in Acts and what's really neat, when we read about Barnabas and Saul, hey, notice this next time you're reading through your Bible and reading through these couple of chapters in Acts, it was always Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, but then something happens. There's a flip of leadership. And then it becomes, for the rest of the way, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. It's really cool. It took me a, a while to even figure that out. Maybe not for you, but I'm not the smartest knife in the, in the drawer here. Hey, there again, BMWs? When they build cars, they don't sit in the showroom, do they? I mean, they're, they're meant to be on the open road. That sounds like a good advertisement. They're meant for the open road. And disciples aren't meant to be just kept in church, but to send them out. So here's what Barnabas then does. Barnabas built up Paul, then he let him go. He, he released him. And he said, go out and, ma and make a difference. So, see, so he knew that, man, Paul's going to do some great and mighty things. So the very first place that we're called Christians were there in Antioch. And, and, and man, right there in Antioch, of all places where Barnabas is a leader, he relinquishes that leadership to Paul. And you would think, man, that's a great ending. Ah, there's a really big bump in the road. And what that really big bump is is that Paul and Barnabas, they had flipped in their leadership there. They had a split. You can almost say the very first church split was then. But I really don't want to call that a church split. Because neither one of them, Barnabas nor Paul, neither one of them gave up on their faith. Neither one of them gave up on their ministry. But there was a division between them over a particular individual named John Mark. Yeah, that Mark that wrote the second gospel. There was a division between Barnabas and Paul here. 
And that leads me just to say this. Yet there was a division. God used Barnabas to do something pretty dramatic. And what Barnabas did was he brought Mark back to the faith. Over in Acts chapter 15. I told you we were going to be looking at a couple of passages today. Acts 15, verses 36 and 41. Turn there with me. Because you think, man, this is not going to end well. These guys, these men of God, these leaders of the early church, they've had a split. They can't get along because of this guy named John Mark. Hmm. Acts 15, verse 36 and following. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, who's called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with him uh, Mark, who had withdrawn from them and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas, and they departed, and having been commended by the brothers to, to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. Scholars debate, and they still debate to this day, just what was it that caused this division between Barnabas and Paul? And you would think, great, that, that's terrible. God's all about restoring people. Y'all believe that? I'll tell you something deep. Good golly, Miss Molly, I believe that with all my heart. God's all about restoring people. And, and he used Barnabas to do this, but, but we get a glimpse, a, a really great glimpse into Paul's heart and how God has changed Paul's heart. When he wrote the second letter to Timothy, Paul said these words, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. He says, hey, Timothy, get Mark. I want you to bring Mark with you when you come see me because he's beneficial He's useful to me. I don't know about you, but I'm just thankful I've got people in my life that didn't give up on me when they could have. And you've got people in your life that didn't give up on you either. And as far as we know, Barnabas never wrote a book. As far as we know, um, there's no sermons that he's ever preached that we see here in Scripture or elsewhere. Can I tell you what I personally like to think? So don't leave here saying, the pastor said this. I personally, gosh, I hope this is true, but I can't prove it. But it's a neat thought. It'd be really cool to find out one day that Barnabas wrote Hebrews. But that's just me, all right? It may not be you. It might be Bill. But, um, but we know that God wrote it. We don't know what human art that he used to pen it. But in my wild hairs, I kind of think, well, it really would be cool if it was Barnabas. We don't know that much about him other than he was a disciple maker. And the apostles had it right when Luke wrote in Acts chapter 4 that he is Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And what he did was he brought along Paul, who really had a past, <laughs> who really had a past. He brought along Paul, he discipled him, and what did Paul do? He discipled Timothy, Timothy discipled others, and on and on and on. Y'all with me? The story goes. It's a process of disciple-making. The scriptural plan, I believe, as we look at scripture and as we observe scripture, is that we need to model a discipleship process just like this. So I want to just... I want to leave you with this, and then I want to keep on trucking. So I guess I'm really not leaving you. Some of you got excited with that, right? But, but you can be a Barnabas. I mean, you really can be a Barnabas here. Now, look with me at your handout. You're thinking, well, when are we going to get to it? Well, now we're getting to it. And so turn with me in your handout that you got today when you walked in the doors. I hope you've got one. If you don't, we'll, we'll get you one. But um, it, it may be later, all right? But just you can watch this online again if you want to. I would encourage you to if you don't have one with you. 
but let's, let's go over the handout, and, and I'm well aware of the time, and, but this is you know, what I feel like God's laid up in my heart to lead up into this teaching time. You can be a Barnabas. And what you see before you from last Sunday and today and the Sundays to come is what I like to call a foundational discipleship process. This is how we're going to begin to make disciples. You know, we're going to gather as a body of Christ and we're going to grow together into the image of Christ. Y'all with me? Say amen. Have I lost you yet? All right, just making sure. So how do we even begin to grow as a Christian? For that matter, you know, what does a Christian, what does a Christian look like? Because we're growing into the image of Christ, but what in the world... And how are we to grow as a Christians? Well, just know this. And I'll share this with Kevin a few minutes ago before we baptize him. This is a journey. And his baptism was just the first step of a journey. And let me just encourage you. I hope Kevin encouraged you today with his testimony. He was not ashamed of getting baptized. And I hope you won't be ashamed of getting baptized either. If you haven't been baptized, it's the first step of obedience. We talked about that last week. But spiritual growth is a journey and it is a lifelong process. Have you ever heard the phrase, how do you eat an elephant? Answer that for me. I think a fork. Why, how, how come a fork isn't the answer there? I, I, just, I don't know, but yeah, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How do you become a disciple? Well, it's one journey. It's one step at a time. Make sure when you're starting that journey that just the tongue of your shoe is not pointed in the right direction, but that you're actually going to walk in the right direction and you want to make sure that you're doing all you can on your spiritual journey as a disciple that's one of the first steps you take if you want to grow as a Christian it's a journey and just understand it's a journey but you gotta you gotta have some action about you not only is spiritual growth a journey but growth requires action following Christ is not just you know thinking that automatically now that I've been saved and now that I'm a baptized believer and I'm a member of a church, now that you're going to wake up the next morning and be the next Billy Graham. Wouldn't it be cool if that was the case? But you've got to work it. You know, just like membership in a gym. Just because you've got a church membership doesn't mean you're going to look like me. Ha, 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 ha. Just because you're a member of, of a gym doesn't mean you're going to be you know, ripped and be in the greatest shape of your life. Just because you're a member of a church doesn't mean that you're going to grow as a, as a disciple. It takes work. It takes personal investment. This is the really good word. If you want to grow in Christ, you've got to be able to walk with Christ. I would ask you, what is your walk like? How are you walking with Christ? Growth requires action, and not only does it require action, it is personal. It's a personal walk with Christ. Discipleship is personal as important as our gathering is with other believers in a setting like this and I love worshiping in a setting like this I like it when we're all together and we're worshiping together and that's important it's important for us to gather as the body of Christ for a number of reasons we talked about it last week even more important is that personal time that private time that intimate time that you're with God in your prayer closet or whatever it happens to be in your lazy boy your kitchen table and nobody else is around you just you and him and the scriptures and you're studying the scriptures and you're praying the scriptures and you're meditating on the scriptures and you're allowing God to have some time to speak into your life so discipleship is, is a personal thing but then also discipleship is also a it's a communal thing it, it, the, the church is about community Robert said this and he, you know, it's in your notes there and it's a really good saying we need Christ for salvation but we need others for survival can I get a witness 
I mean, good grief, life can be hard sometimes. So we need Christ for salvation, but we need each other. I hope you realize that. We're better together. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes that two people are better than one and that a threefold cord is not easily what? Broken, right? So Christianity is meant to be done together. So if Christianity is meant to be done together, it's best that we're a part of a local church. So let me just introduce you to the church I choose to be a part of, and that's the church that many of you have chosen to be a part of as well. So what is the church here at Sheraw? Well, here's what we are. We are a gathering of disciples, and we're all on different spectrums, right? We've got some that are babes in Christ. We've got some that are really, really mature in Christ, but we're all in this together. We're a gathering of disciples. The Greek word for church is the word ecclesia, and it means the called out one. So Christians are the called out ones. We are the ones, get this, we're the ones that represent Christ to others. Can I ask you a question? How's that going for you? I, I hope it can never be said of me that I speak negative of my church and what God is doing here when I'm out and about on the town or anywhere else. So we're a gathering of disciples. Something else you may not know, and it's in your notes, and I'm not going to take time to read it, is that we're a church that's been planted. I mean, we just hadn't just started here. We were a church that was planted here by the folks over at Welsh Neck Baptist Church in Society Hill. And you can read about that history. It's a great history. We're actually redoing our website a little bit, so hopefully in another week or two, we've got a fresh updated website. I think you'll be really excited about it. And there's a section on there about our history. You see just a snapshot of it in your notes there. It's really an interesting and neat, neat story. What history our church has. And in the same way that Joe and Jesse went to plant the church in Boston, in the same way that Pastor Jorge and Rebecca Santiago, did I say that right? Same way that they're planting the church there in Puerto Rico, somebody planted our church when about 13 people from Welshnet were released to come plant a church here at Sheraw. It's just a really neat story. Our church was planted. And know about this when it comes to our church. You know, we're aligned with other organizations. We're aligned with the Southern Baptist Convention. That's what the words are, the letters SBC stand for. But not only are we aligned with the Southern Baptist Convention, we're aligned with the South Carolina Baptist Convention. We're aligned with the Chesterfield Baptist Association. Get this, we're the oldest church in the Chesterfield Baptist Association. But we're young and spry, don't you think? But we're really the oldest church in the Chesterfield Baptist Association. And let me just say all this. We align with all those different ministry organizations for the purpose of ministry, and our doctrines line up, but we are a local, autonomous church. We govern ourselves. That's one of the distinctives of Baptist identity. So we're aligned with all of these organizations. And then know this, our values filter everything we do. What we value, what we say our values are, really set us apart, and last October, when I became your pastor, one of the first, or I think it is the sermon series I first did when I got here was I, I share this with you. This is what I think we ought to be about. It's what we are about. It's what every New Testament church should be about. Biblical authority, transformational worship, relational discipleship, and missional living. What does that look like? Biblical authority means we're to live under the submission of God's word. Transformational worship is we become more like Jesus as we glorify him together in worship. Relational discipleship, we grow spiritually through intentional relationships. And then missional living, we're to join Jesus in his mission of sharing the gospel. What's our strategy for doing that? Well, you ought to know it by now. Our strategy is to gather, to give, to grow, and to go. I said that, I flipped it around, but you, you can read the screens. 
Gather, grow, give, and go. That's our strategy. And there again, it's best done we're, we're together. Hey, here's the million-dollar question. Who runs the church? I know most marriages, the difficulties that they have in marriages is basically the number one reason people have issues in marriage, divorces, separations, is money. Most pastors and churches, when there's a bad split, it's over you know, who leads the church. Can I just tell you who leads our church? Jesus does. He's the true shepherd. You know who I am? I'm an under-shepherd. I'm not, I'm not the shepherd. I work for the shepherd. I submit to the shepherd. So when it comes to who leads our church, well, Jesus is. He's, he's our true shepherd. And, and, and just know that, that, that your staff and I, that we really want to, as, as much as we can, submit. And we do want to submit to his commands, and we want to follow the example of our Lord. Jesus put it this way. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And my sheep, they know my voice. I lay down my life for them. So he's our true shepherd, and he should be the true shepherd of every New Testament church. But not only is he our true shepherd that leads our church, know that when it comes to the structure of a church, God gives the church pastors. And I know what you're thinking, Lord, help us, Lord, help us. But he gives to the church pastors. And scripture uses words kind of interchangeably here. Sometimes it uses the word elders or overseers, or sometimes we use the word pastor. It's all the same thing. It's a word that's used interchangeably. We read about that in 1 Timothy 5, 17. We're a shepherd. We're a pastor. And get this, you've got three of them. You've got three individuals that really want to serve you and serve the Lord together. We're under the leadership. We're under the headship of Jesus Christ. And you've got to, you've got to hey, this is the first time in a while you actually have a staff, a really a compliment full staff. I hope that excites you. You know, God's brought our church. Thank you, Ty. God brought our church. You know, three different individuals. He brought Trey, who's much more than a student minister. He brought Robert, who, who leads us so well with worship and discipleship. And, and you got me. You know what? Robert likes to use the term lead pastor. I used to love the, the term senior pastor. Can I tell you something? This is the first time in my life I really am the senior pastor. That's kind of hard to swallow. That means I'm the oldest guy on staff. Mitch, I can't believe it. I have arrived I'm the oldest staff member in our church. That has never happened before until now. I'll tell you this. My first church out of seminary, bless their heart, bless the hearts of churches that take people that are green right out of seminary, that don't know a thing. They're there to learn. They really do have the training wheels on when it comes to their ministry. Uh, I remember being at a, at a meeting, and one of my best friends who's in Oklahoma now as a, as a director of missions, his name's Monty Hale. We were talking, and, I, and they were asking us to introduce ourselves. Room full of pastors. And I said, well, my name is Rod Elliott. I'm the senior pastor of Salem Baptist Church. And Monty said, Rod, you're the only pastor at Salem Baptist Church. <laughs> You've got three of them. And I really hope you realize we all want to be here. And we want to serve with you. So we're led by pastors. And let me just tell you this. Some of my best friends in the church are these guys, deacons. We've got a deacons meeting at 4 o'clock today. First one of the new church year. Can I tell you something? I'm looking forward to it. What pastor says that? Not many. But I really do look forward to our deacons meetings because our, our deacons are my friends. And they are not a board. They're a body, and they're the spiritual leaders of our church. And they provide for me and the rest of your staff counsel. We pray about you. We pray about things. And, and, and they're, they're just a great example of faithful men. They're not perfect but they're faithful men. 
Then when it comes also to the leadership structure of our church, we're run by, not run, that's kind of a bad word, we function through ministry team directors. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we voted on the leadership of our church. Uh, we have different ministry teams, the old words committees, that's got such a business connotation. Uh, we want to use the term ministry teams because we're doing ministry together as a church, and our ministry teams have leaders, and you help us be the church that God wants us to be. Now, let me just say this, and we'll, we'll move on, and I'm almost finished. No matter a church's size, close relationships with a few people are really essential. It's just really essential for you to be a part of something that we call a small group. And I'm thankful that many of you were at our 9 o'clock small group time in the sanctuary this morning. Small groups are just as important as a big group setting just like this. And we've got them grouped by age, we've got them grouped by gender, life stages, topic, and, and location. Um, we've got some new groups that are starting up. And, and what we hope all of our small groups will do, and I'm sure Robert has talked about this more than once, not only through personal conversations, but even through his writings, hey, make sure you read our newsletters. It's the way that we can communicate with you our goals, our dreams, what we feel like God's doing in our church. But one of the things that we want our small groups to be a this is what we want their DNA to be, is we want them to make sure they're bringing people together. I hope when you come together with your small group, you're there and you're having fun. Yeah, the, the word is, is the focus. You're there to study God's word together, but you're there to encourage one another, and you're there to fellowship together, and, and, and you just bring people together. I love the fact that healthy small groups bring people together. And when you bring people together, guess what it leads to? It leads to growth. Not only do you grow numerically, but you grow spiritually too. That's the purpose of small groups, is to help you come alongside other believers and you grow in your relationship not only with each other, but your relationship with the Lord. I love Proverbs 27. As iron sharpens iron, so does one, one person strengthen and sharpen another. Another aspect of God's Word is we want you to do this. We want you to teach God's Word. Another aspect, rather, of our small groups. You come together, um, you're bringing people together, you're leading to growth personally, but then we want you to teach God's Word. Make time to teach God's Word. And we've got a number of ways to do that. And I'm so excited to say this. If you've got your bulletin in front of you, you don't have to turn it now, but Kelly, it's in there, right? Right now, media. It's our gift to you as the church. It will help you as a church to... Um, to put more Bible teaching in your hands, not only for you personally, not only for your families, uh, man, even for your small groups. It's kind of like the Netflix, right now media is. It's the Netflix of Bible videos, and they're really, really good. Ricardo, I'm looking at your family now. Your whole family would love that series. It'll be a great time for y'all to come together as a family and to watch not only stuff that you might watch on TV, but you can just watch these great, great videos about raising kids, about parenting. It's, it's just it's the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae. Can you tell I'm excited about it? It's one of the goals I wanted to have for our church, and, and we've got it now. We're giving that to you. It's, a, it's another tool in your arsenal to teach God's Word. But then lastly, when it comes to your small groups, we want you to work on missions together. You know, I would encourage you. I've said this before to our small group leaders. I'll say it to you one more time. Make sure at least a minimum, once a quarter, at least once a quarter, have some type of ministry that you can do together. It might be something like taking, taking up a food drive for the McCarn Food Bank. Uh, it, it could be a number of things. One of the things I did as part of my small group a couple of years ago is we said, you know what, we want to clean the stairways of our church. They were just kind of nasty. So we came together on a Sunday night, and we had 409, 
We had mop buckets of water. We had washcloths, and we clean, we scrubbed with, with toothbrushes, and we didn't use the toothbrushes later, you know, but we used the toothbrushes and, and other brushes, and, and we cleaned those stairways. And guess what? We had a lot of comments. Man, they looked good. They were dirty. Y'all know things in church can get dirty really, really fast. So just find a mission project that you can do together. Bottom line, just become a member of a small group. And if you're a member of a small group, hopefully that will lead to you wanting to be a member of a church like ours. I love a church like ours, and I hope you do as well. And I'm thankful that last week when you filled out that questionnaire, that several of you said, hey, we want to be a member of this church. Can I tell you something? We know who you are, and we want to talk to you about that, and we will be talking to you about that. But let me tell you what membership means. Membership should mean a lot. You know, membership, one of the things that membership should mean is that membership should mean commitment. Have you all ever noticed that sometimes it's harder? Sometimes it's harder to, to maintain your membership, like in an athletic booster club, be it on the high school level or college level. Sometimes it's harder to be a member of a service organization like Rotary than it is to be a member of the church. Do you all know that we have churches all across our denomination that have inflated roles? And we've had people that are on roles that haven't been to church in 30-plus years. Why is that? If they were a member of Rotary or something else, they would, have, they would have been addressed. But membership ought to mean something when you become a member of a church like ours or any church. A member builds relationships with others, prioritizes the church and the events of the church. A member gives of his or her time, talent, and treasure to the church. A member vocally supports the church and pursues unity instead of disagreement. So a member of this church or any New Testament church should be a member that's committed to that church. <laughs> We're not perfect, but you ought, to be, you ought to be committed. But then secondly, membership puts you on a team. You don't have to be on the sidelines anymore. We want you in the game. Boy, that reminds me of EA Sports, in the game, what I played in college a lot. Yeah, membership puts you on a team, so you don't only have to be on the sidelines. You can actually be a part of something. We read over in Romans 12, verse 5, so we, though we're many, we're one body in Christ. We're individual members of one another. So membership puts you on a team, but even more important in my mind is that membership puts you in a family. And when it comes to people I've grown up with in my home church, people that I've been a part of churches with in my past, I've been more closer to my church family on many and on several occasions than I have been to my blood kin family. Family's important, don't you agree? And church family should be important as well. We read over in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and even my mother. So we're a part of the same family. Membership does that. That's why you join a church. But know, too, that membership is a process. There's a process of membership. If you ever want to be a member of this church or any other church, let me just tell you this. Pray about it. And make sure this is what God wants you to do in your life. I would even encourage you then to make sure that you're a part of our growth track classes. This is going to be a series of classes that we're going to offer periodically throughout the year that if we have somebody that wants to join our church, man, I hope they'll walk the aisle. And if they do, we're going to say, hey, praise God from whom all blessings flow. But by the way, we want you to attend a growth track class, classes, right? We want them to see this is what we're about. We want to know a little about them just like they want to know a little bit about us. Then we would ask them what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. And that's to sign a membership covenant. Now, if anything is old school, that is old school. If you go back in our records, and in the back of records of many churches like ours, 
People that joined a church actually signed a covenant saying, this is what I agree to. Why? Because membership ought to mean something. You ought to agree with the doctrine. You ought to agree with our values. And, and I'm not going to force you to sign that because some of y'all have been members for 50 or 70 years. And God bless you. But let me tell you something. I'm going to sign it. I'm going to say I'm all in. My church can expect that I'm going to give my best to the master as best that I can. You know, one of the sweetest things I've ever done as a pastor is to officiate a, um, a renewal of vow, a renewal of vow ceremony um, at a previous church. They were, I guess, renewing their, their vows for their 50th wedding anniversary. And, you know, they've had a ton of pastors to come through, and yet they chose me to do that. Man, what an honor. And it was so sweet. And uh, I've never met a couple like June and Buddy Melton. Just a sweet, 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 God-loving couple. They love the church. And you know what? They love me. Bless their heart. But they allow me to take part and to lead that ceremony where they renew their vows. They've been married a long, long time. Well, they just felt led to renew their vows. I would just say to you today, maybe you might feel led to renew your commitment to your church. And if you do, sign that form, take it home and read it if you have to, and then bring it back and just drop it off in the foyer there at our Welcome Center table. So you got a membership commitment that you can do. You can sign up for that covenant. It's just a way for you to say, hey, I'm all in. And then, so, so, so let me just close. I, man, I've talked enough. We've got to close. And you've been very, very patient. I promise you Robert probably won't be as long-winded as I've been today. What in the world should be our next steps? Well, very quickly, be active with your discipleship. You know, we can help you grow as a disciple. Come to us if you're struggling. We could give you a Bible reading plan. Hey, one of the cool things about the new year that I'm looking at is we're going to have a Bible reading plan for our entire church family. So we'll be on the same page through a Bible reading plan all year long. There's even going to be a part of memorization of, of Bible Scripture. I'll hide God's Word in my heart so that I might not what? sin against God. So there will be a part of a memorization plan that we'll, that we'll give you there. So, so just make sure you're active with your discipleship. Grow, join a group. I mean, we've got a couple of small groups you can be a part of. In fact, in just a few minutes when you leave, we've got a surprise for you. Some of you said last week we want to be a part of a group. Our group leaders are going to be in the foyer in a few minutes, and they've got finger foods. Man, you can tell we're a Baptist church, right? We've got finger foods that we're going to be eating, so don't just head out the doors. Fellowship a little bit. Socialize and, and, and find these small group leaders. and They're there just to say, hey, this is who we are, and here, have a muffin or something. If you got chocolate, even better. I'm at your table if you got the chocolate. So just be active, join a group, and then I hope you will prayerfully consider becoming a member of a church like Shara. Let me close up by saying this, going back to the story of Barnabas. You know, you might be saying, man, I really wish I had somebody like a Barnabas in my life. I really need, Pastor Rod, I need somebody to come into my life that's a Barnabas, somebody that would just encourage me. I really need somebody to come into my life that would just, you know, bring me along and be a Barnabas in my life. And that's all well and good. And if that's where you are, hey, let us know. We will join you in praying for that. We will even try our best to find somebody to be a Barnabas to you. But don't miss the real application. The real application is not for you to wait for a Barnabas to come into your life, but for you to be a Barnabas in somebody else's life and to bring them along. Let me ask you to bow your head. Let's pray. Father, I know I have gone really long this morning, but Lord, it's an opportunity to reemphasize the importance of disciple-making and how we're, as a church family, are going to make disciples here in our church. I thank you for providing leaders, not only on our staff, 
but others, Heavenly Father, that really have a heart to want to see disciples made. So, Father, I just pray that you will help us, Lord Jesus, to take um, how you have wired us and to invest that in the life of somebody else. See, with every head bowed and every eye closed, and I just want to encourage you, you be a Barnabas to somebody. You be a disciple maker. You don't have to be a perfect Christian to do that either. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be free from struggles, but you do have to have a serious relationship with Jesus. You don't have to be in church leadership, per se, to have a discipleship relationship with somebody. You don't have to have a Bible degree from a school or a seminary, but you've got to be willing to learn, and you've got to be willing to grow and to have a knowledge and a thirst to see somebody grow in their relationship with the Lord. You, know, you don't have to be outgoing. You don't have to be outspoken. You don't have to be a gifted teacher, but you've got to be willing to do your best to express your wisdom and your thoughts and your convictions through the lens of Scripture. You don't have to be someone's Christian counselor. You don't have to fix every problem in their life, but you've got to be willing, if you're going to be a Barnabas, to listen. You've got to be willing to empathize with where they are in your life. And I could go on and on and on, but Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you will raise up among us today people who have a heart and who have a desire to be a Barnabas. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.